Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We turn our attention to the markets this week. U.S. CPI numbers reinforcing concerns about inflation. The financial stories that shape our world. A really different reaction to markets. More indications of just how hot the U.S. economy really is. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Catherine Keating, CEO of BNY Mellon. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Sam Zell, chairman and founder of Equity Group Investments. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Testing the economy. More bank tremors, more Fed rate hikes, and the unimaginable prospect of a U.S. default. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This week, Stephen Ross of related companies on Wall Street moving to Miami. Miami is probably the most dynamic city in the country today. And Melissa Carney of the University of Maryland on thousands of college students gone missing. The decline in the enrollment is not an encouraging trend. Global Wall Street had plenty to focus on this week. As we began the week, breathing a sigh of relief over resolution of last week's banking crisis over First Republic. We are all very pleased to get the, the major source of uncertainty that was remaining from the recent bank turmoil addressed. And that, that is a good thing. But then Treasury Secretary Yellen told us that we may have less time than we thought to deal with that debt ceiling problem. Well, it would be absolutely disastrous for me to be, to be completely blunt. And by Tuesday, we were back to worrying about the banks again, as each day seemed to bring news of another regional bank seeking a new path. It's tumbling right now by 42% after saying it's weighing strategic options. The TD Bank uh, has agreed with First Horizon to terminate the previously announced merger, which had been agreed upon, let's be honest, before all the turmoil in the banks. But despite the problems with the banks and concerns over the debt ceiling, the Fed on Wednesday went ahead with the 25 basis point rate hike it had to telegraph, with Chair Powell opening the door to a pause, but saying that inflation is still with us for now. Inflation remains well above our, our longer-run goal of 
Then on Thursday, the European Central Bank followed suit, but said it does not plan to pause. In light of the ongoing high inflation pressures, the Governing Council today decided to raise the three key ECB interest rates by 25 basis points. And if all that weren't enough, on Friday the U.S. jobs numbers came in much stronger than expected, adding another 253,000 jobs last month, though they took away some from the month before. And as important, the unemployment rate went back down to their record 3.4% level and wages increased at a brisk pace of five-tenths of a percent month over month. Equity markets on Friday reversed all or most of all of their losses from the rest of the week, with the S&P 500 ending the week off a mere eight-tenths of a percent, while the Nasdaq gained less than one-tenth of a percent. And the yield in the 10-year went all the way up to 3.6% and then went all the way down to under 3.3% to end the week just about where it started at 3.43%. To take us through the week in the markets and the economy, welcome back now Ellen Lee. She's Portfolio Manager at Causeway Capital and Savita Subramanian. She's Bank of America Head of U.S. Equity and Quantitative Strategy. So welcome to both of you. Great to have you here. Let me start with you, Ellen, if I could. Given what we saw from the Fed but then from the jobs numbers, what, is, what do we make the economy right now and where it's headed? Well, clearly inflation is still high and uh, Fed is still has concerns around that. And um, this the latest job numbers still indicate that there is more slowing down to do. However, what's happening with the regional banking crisis, I think that will help in this effort, but there's still more work to be done as inflation is not quite there. And also, the slowdown is not at a pace that we would want it to be in the current environment. Uh, so what about you, Savita? Uh, we heard about a possible pause maybe on Wednesday. Is that still viable after the jobs numbers we saw on Friday? I mean, look, I think we're in a data-dependent environment, and the data so far is suggesting we're probably not going to see that rate cut that everybody is hoping for by the end of the, you know, in, in the next couple of quarters. I mean, our, our view is that re inflation might remain stickier and higher for the, the rest of the year. I mean, if you look at jobs, a big part of the, the tight labor market is, is just the great resignation during COVID. And those folks haven't come back yet. So, you know, I think it, it remains tight in, in certain parts of the economy. So, Savita, let's talk about the equity markets. You are one of our 24 L's, I'm delighted to say. Thank you for being here. And you're sort of in the middle of the pack, $400 on the EPS and uh, $4,000. $200 EPS and $4,000 on the, on the S&P 500. Yes. Are you inclined to change that at all, given what we saw this week? I'm, at, I'm at right in the middle of the, the consensus elf, I guess. Um, well, well, I think we're a little lower than, than consensus on earnings. And I think, if anything, I would be inclined to move that higher after what we've heard over the last few weeks. I mean, what really impresses me about earnings season is that guidance has been very positive, despite every reason that companies have to guide down on this year's earnings or next year's earnings, they're actually guiding above what consensus is expecting. So I was surprised by that optimism. We're also seeing beats across the board, um, not just in you know technology stocks, but also in financials and healthcare. So it's been a very healthy earnings season relative to what what folks were expecting coming into it. Um, I think on the market itself, what I worry about is that it's still very tech top heavy, and that's the part of the market that I'm actually more um, concerned about from a, a rate risk perspective. Ellen, what about tech? Tech had been a leader for a long time, then it sort of gave up leadership. Who's going to lead now? 
I mean, we believe in the next cycle with you know, themes like energy transition and more automation and um, energy infrastructure build and onshoring. We think industrials will be more at the head of market leadership as we are hearing not only in the U.S., but also in Europe of continuous CapEx plans because of the change that's needed to get us to the next era. And again, with interest rates where they are, you know, if we believe the zero rate interest rates are not bad, the biggest beneficiaries of that actually reside in the tech sector, and we don't think that will come back. And therefore, we believe in, in sectors like industrials and energy will lead the next rally. So what about Savita, as you look at equities, are there some idiosyncratic areas, particularly when it comes to credit, that are getting hit worse than others? I mean, everybody's interest rates are going up, but it may hit some companies differently from others. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the big surprises to me is when you look at some of these so-called defensive areas of the market, like healthcare or telecom, the, the, the credit risk is actually higher than you would expect, whereas energy, materials, commodities, which are typically, you know, kind of at the epicenter of most credit uh, downturns, are in a much better position. They've been deprived of capital for many, many years. They've become very disciplined about cash return and balance sheets and capital allocation, whereas the companies that have gotten more easy money might not be in as great a position to handle this market increase in interest rates. So, you know, healthcare was, uh, I think it's the fourth highest industry in terms of floating rate risk sitting on balance sheets, which means they're going to face that move in debt uh, a lot faster than other sectors. I did not know that. Quickly here at the end, Alan, you like Europe when it comes to securities. Why is that? Well, first of all, Europe valuation is much more attractive versus U.S. Secondly, in terms of a higher rate interest, higher interest rate environment, that should be advantageous. And thirdly, think about the energy crisis that Europe is going through right now. And they have to shift their energy infrastructure which is a very strategic element of an economy. So that spending is going to continue. And not only that, they are leading the efforts on decarbonization. And again, that will act as a fiscal stimulus for the growth of the economy. And again, Europe has had very little spending in infrastructure the last 30 years. Yeah. So we this, again, will work in the favor of companies that are in energy and industrials to fuel economic growth in the next decade. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I did not know that, actually, about healthcare. It's a fascinating point, Savita. Thank you for bringing it to us. Thanks so much to Savita Subramanian of Bank of America and also Ellen Lee of Causeway Capital. It's time now for our weekly look at Wall Street Week Past. Back in April of 1991, the number one movie in the U.S. was Out for Justice, starring Steven Seagal. The number one song was You're in Love by Wilson Phillips. And as now, people were worried about the banks, with Louis Ruckheiser taking us through the problem as he saw it back then. Coming up, where have all the college students gone? We talked with Professor Melissa Carney of the University of Maryland about the drop-off in high school students headed to college and what they are missing out on. That wage premium that college graduates are getting in the economy is still really high. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. 
It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. College. It's been the dream of American students and their parents for decades. The proven pathway to better jobs, higher pay, and social mobility. And, not incidentally, a crucial source for the highly skilled workers we need for the next generation. And we're talking about what do we have to do in order to get our economy going, to make sure that we have a 21st century education system that's preparing our children how not just to be employees, but how to be employers. But the risks and rewards of getting that college degree are coming under fresh scrutiny as the cost of getting the degree have been rising much faster than inflation for both public and private colleges and universities. And the burden of borrowing to pay those costs has been so crippling that the Biden administration is trying to forgive a fair amount of it. An entire generation is now saddled with unsustainable debt in exchange for an attempt at least at a college degree. Even as Speaker McCarthy's new budget proposal would cut back on Pell Grants, which provide financial aid to the most needy. The Department of Education shared how the Speaker's bill would remove up to 60,000 teachers from, from classrooms, eliminate student debt relief for more than 40 million Americans, and make college more expensive by reducing Pell Grants for millions. And if all that weren't enough, the COVID pandemic hit college students particularly hard, as far fewer high school students enroll in college today than before the pandemic, leaving us with the critical question whether college is still worth it. 
And to take us through whether, in fact, a college degree is still worth it, we welcome now back to Wall Street Week, Melissa Carney. She's professor of economics at University of Maryland, as well as director of the Aspen Economic Strategy Group. So, Melissa, great to have you back with us. First of all, start with the basic me. question about enrollment. Is enrollment down? If so, how much? And is it because of the pandemic, or did it start before the pandemic? Yeah, recent numbers on enrollment rates suggest that enrollment is down. This is the sixth year that enrollment is down. So it was starting to decline before the pandemic took hold, but the pandemic knocked a lot of high schoolers and young adults off their college going plans. So we hear a lot, David, about the learning loss in elementary schools and high schools. I think another thing we really have to be focused on is how many graduating seniors would have otherwise enrolled in college who haven't and they haven't come back yet. So this is concerning. And how much of it's the cost of the whole thing? Because you saw that Wall Street Journal poll that said something like 56% of Americans don't believe a college degree is worth the price. Yeah, that I found those polling numbers really quite troubling. So as you mentioned, a majority, a small majority, but a majority nonetheless of American adults now doubt that a college degree is worth it. And, and that is just, it's, that's just emphatically not true. So in general, People who graduate with a four-year college degree will make back the amount of money that if they made good decisions that they would have paid to get that degree. So a college degree is still you know, an excellent investment in one's economic future. We know that college degree holders, four-year college degree holders in particular, have an easier time finding work. They command much higher earnings when they do work, um, even in today's tight labor market. Uh, but as you mentioned, the price is really, it's hard to figure out. And so a lot of people actually think getting a college degree would be more expensive than it would be for them in particular. Melissa, you mentioned the relative lack of transparency and exactly knowing what the cost is. It's hard to do a cost-benefit analysis if you don't know what the cost side is, whatever the benefit <laughs> side is. Why is it so uh, opaque? They have their sticker price, their tuition price. That's their all-in price, what they charge people who can pay full price. That's also what they charge the government for people who are paying on behalf of others. Um, but that's not what an individual student pays. So about three-quarters of students at four-year institutions are getting some form of aid. And so it's just really hard for students to figure out until they've gone through the whole process of applying for financial aid, filling out the FAFSA, how much any individual school will take. There are a lot of efforts underway to make that pricing more transparent so students can figure out earlier in the process. But I think the, the real message that needs to get out is that students should not be discouraged from applying applying to flagship schools, selective four-year schools, because they think they can't afford it. They should go through the process. Students who go to selective schools, who go to four-year degrees seeking, you know, degree granting schools, they tend to have better outcomes. Those schools often have more resources and are better able to serve their students. So students should not be discouraged from applying and they should take advantage of information that's out there, net cost calculators, information on student on school websites to figure out what on average is a typical student paying to attend this school. And by the way, People should make smart choices. Like public schools charge a lot less than private schools. So getting back to why a lot of people don't think a school is worth it or pursuing a college degree is worth it, you know, 
the, you could get a lot of really good deals if you're looking at public four-year institutions as opposed to private, especially if you're looking at in-state tuition. Those net prices are much lower for typical students, and people should take that into account when they decide where to go. So, so typically in economics, as I understand it, you understand it much better than I do, in supply and demand, if the supply starts to come down, it might put some pressure on the system. If, in fact, we're getting less enrollment, do you see any indication some of these institutions of higher learning are saying, you know, we've got to get our act together, we've got to be, for example, more transparent, more direct, and by the way, even give a sense over the four years what's going to happen in the out years, because one issue is how much you're going to raise once I get in. Unambiguously, the decline in the enrollment is not an encouraging trend. Um, whatever pressures it might put on some schools that are losing students, I think the decline in enrollment is really troubling because, as we said, a college degree really does grant an earnings premium to students who attend and complete a four-year degree. So the, the earnings premium going to college workers was rising tremendously in the 1980s and 1990s when demand for college-level skills really took off and the supply of college-educated workers didn't keep up. Since 2000, that wage premium has stalled. But importantly, it is still tremendously high. So in a typical year, you know, let's just take 2019 before the pandemic, you know, the, uh, someone with a four-year college degree on average would make about 88% more a year than a full-time full-year worker with just a high school degree. When you talk about the earnings premium, it surely must depend in part upon what you study and what the line of work you go into, right? I mean, I can just imagine, for example, what the demands are right now for sort of technology and some of the expertise in technology uh, are very different from what they were 30 years ago. Absolutely. And this is a really important point. So in general, even though I'm really emphasizing that a college degree is a good investment in one's future, the fact of the matter is not all institutions and not all majors deliver large earnings premiums. And that, again, is something that students have to take into account and have to make good decisions about where they're studying and what they're studying. And that information, too, is now much more readily available um, than it used to be in the past. Students can look up what is the typical earning path for someone who pursues this major, who attends this institution, uh, and, and again, make smart choices. Uh, so, Melissa, as you look at the decline in enrollment, what about the demographics of it? Is, is it affecting some people more than others? Yeah, the decline in enrollment has been much larger among men than women, uh, which is, you know, <laughs> women are doing better overall when when it comes to young women getting college degrees, and so this is worrisome. And the pandemic-related decline was especially pronounced among non-white men. Uh, again, this is another you know, this is another reason why these trends are particularly worrisome. We think a college degree is a great engine of upward mobility, and we worry if kids from lower-income homes, from um, non-white families in particular, are the ones who disproportionately had their college-going plans knocked off track. Okay, Melissa, thank you so much for being back with us on Wall Street. That's Melissa Carney. She's professor of economics at the University of Maryland. Coming up, the Fed told us this week it might just pause, but will the jobs numbers let it pause? We asked Stephanie Flanders. She's senior executive editor for economics and government on Bloomberg. That does tell you something about the underlying strength of this economy and certainly of the labor market, which has continued to confound the Fed. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. 
That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. It was a week full of economic news as well as actions by central banks. And to take us through it all, we welcome now Stephanie Flanders. She is Bloomberg Senior Executive Editor for Economics and Government and also the host of Stephanomics. So, Stephanie, thank you so much for being here. Everything's connected to everything else as far as I can tell. But let's start with the Federal Reserve decision on Wednesday, raising 25 basis points, not exactly saying what comes next, but at least opening the door to pausing. Is it justified, the idea of a possible pause, given where we are with the economy in the United States. Well, of course, we've ended the week with a really strong uh, employment report. You know, we've had we've had 10 interest rate increases in a row, but now 13 payrolls numbers that exceeded expectations. And, you know, David, economists, are, we expect them to be wrong, but they're not usually wrong in the same direction every month for over a year. So that does tell you something about the underlying strength of this economy and certainly of the labour market, which has continued to confound the Fed and and made its job quite difficult in trying to balance that tightening, that that historic degree of tightening in the last year against the sort of justified fears of a creeping credit crunch, uh, problems for regional banks, and, you know, still inflation above target. Well, let's talk about inflation just for a moment, the connection between the strong labor market. And by the way, including those jobs numbers were some pretty robust wage gains month over month. Uh, So as a practical matter... Have we really got our arms around inflation? Do we have any reason to believe that the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve thus far is having a material effect? It's having some effect, a material effect on inflation. 
Well, I think it, it is. It is one of those things that has the policymakers in the Fed wondering. You know, has the transmission mechanism that takes these rate increases out to the broader economy has that broken down? Has it become slower uh, than in the past, or is there something that's something specific in the sort of post-COVID U.S. labour market that's causing a delay, but not an end to that uh, transmission of tighter policies? I think what has changed is you have in these. Uh problems in the regional banking uh, system, which I know we'll probably talk about, you know, the failure of yet another bank, um, that is telling you that there's something that is very tangible that is going to quite shortly has to have an impact on hiring, and that's the squeeze in small business lending. You know, you mentioned my, my podcast, Stephanomics, and we, we heard in this week's episode, actually, about somebody who wants to invest in a pickleball slash restaurant having trouble getting uh, getting a loan, a small business having trouble getting a loan. Now, you know, pickleball is like... Is a massive phenomenon at the moment. If you can't get money for that, um, I think we know that lending conditions are tightening. And that is if small businesses are the ones most affected by that kind of lending squeezing out, tightening up, drying up. And it's small businesses that are the source of most job growth. So it may not happen this month, it may not happen next month, but we do now know that this labour market is going to cool and we have to assume that's going to bring down inflation might also cause a recession. Uh, Stephanie, let's go to the question of the regional banks and the pressure we've seen. Uh, we had the Silicon Valley Bank, and then you had Signature Bank, and every time we would come up, we'd say, oh, it's really idiosyncratic. It was some special failure of the management there. And then we had First Republic. Well, that's a different sort of idiosyncrasy. This week, we saw West, we saw uh, Western Alliance. It seems like every time we look around, there's another idiosyncrasy popping up. At what point does it become systemic rather than idiosyncratic? Yeah, and I think we're starting to say idiosyncratic is if you're a bank that's not one of the big four banks in the U.S. at the moment. That's starting to feel like the divide because almost every other bank at one point or another has been under pressure. And almost every other bank in the U.S. may not be in the kind of difficulties that we saw, the kind of extreme business model, extreme disregard of risks that we saw in some of those other cases, but is certainly facing a kind of fundamental issue. Inverted yield curve makes it very severely inverted yield curve in the key key part of the market between you know three months and 10, you know, that making it hard to make money. Uh, and this, this long-riding kind of expectation that you can make profits by not passing on short-term policy rates um, at, the t- at a time when short-term policy rates are rising, well, that's harder and harder in a world where we know we can have these digital, instantaneous, massive uh, falls, in, uh, falls in deposits and bank runs. You know, I think there are questions about quite a lot of banks in the U.S. right now. Not that they're going to survive, but certainly that it's going to be quite hard for them to make money in the near future. Except for the very big ones, as you suggest. They seem to be doing very well. Thank you, ma'am. Does the the Federal Reserve face a form of a zero-sum game here where either it goes after inflation with increasing rates or it helps the banks by not increasing rates or even cutting rates? Because part of the problem here, obviously, is an interest rate risk issue that was created, maybe intentionally, maybe it's a good thing, by the rapid increase in the rates. Well, that is, you know, that's how the policy is supposed to work uh, in many ways. Uh, At least it's not aimed at reducing the bank's ability to make money or challenging its business model, but it's certainly aimed at tightening credit conditions, reducing lending and reducing economic activity uh, as a result of that. I think we've got to a point, though, where the 
Fed and indeed other central banks are so keen to persuade us that they're not going soft on inflation as a result in response to uh, these concerns around the banks, that there's almost a risk of going the other way. You could see that with Jay Powell uh, this week. There was absolute determination of that separation principle that we, we are going to continue in our battle against inflation and where we have other tools, we're thinking in a separate way about, about the banks. But they obviously can't be completely separated. So everything you've just discussed would be plenty. But on top of that, we had Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, this week saying, by the way, that so-called X date, when the government will really run out of money and not be able to pay its debt, maybe as early as June 1. We have meetings coming up next week of the president with leadership in Congress. Give us a sense of how the debt ceiling crisis may play across the issues we've been discussing. Well, when we talk about the U.S. economy dodging recession, so we're basically saying that it's going to shrug off the effect of the credit crunch in the smaller lenders that I was talking about earlier, but also that we won't have uh, some default moment or a big increase in financial tension around uh, fears of a default in the next month or two. Uh, and we think, you know, if that actually came to a head, that could have a very significant effect on the economy because, you know, if you think about it, it means suddenly overnight uh, the federal government has to balance, it book, uh, balance its books and that means very significant reductions in spending there and then. Now, we don't think it will come to that, um, but the kind of tensions around that, I think, you know, do give Janet Yellen and the broader banking community. I was in the, at the Milken Institute earlier this week in LA. You know, quite a lot of concern under the surface about how this debt ceiling issue is going to play out. And some phone calls being made to Congress, but no real sense that people are getting a handle on it. And finally, Stephanie, let's not leave Europe out of it. We heard also from the European Central Bank this week, who hiked as well 25 basis points, like the Fed, but unlike the Fed, said, you know what, we're going to keep going. Madame Lagarde was, I thought, very clear about that. What's the difference between the two economies and can the ECB take such a different route from the, the Fed if the Fed in fact does pause? Well, of course, the, the European Central Bank started later. It's in a very different uh, kind of situation. Um, I think we, we tend to maybe, certainly when you, if you talk to people in Frankfurt, they say we overplay the amount to which they're watching every move of the Fed and, and thinking about their move in relation to that. But I mean, I think it is the case that that uh, interest rate rise uh, from the Fed and the talk of possible pause from the Fed, you know, did give some cover to Christine Lagarde and her colleagues at the European Central Bank to reduce the amount of increase that they had. So we just saw that quarter point. They're slowing the path of interest rate rises. She did talk about another two. We think it's more likely to be another one that you will see a pause in the summer because they have other. They're allowing their their balance sheet to run off after the, after June. So that's a continued form of tightening that they can rely on. But you're right that ultimately, if the market's right, for example, that the Fed's going to start cutting rates at the end of this year, that could prove very difficult for the European Central Bank because they're certainly a long way from cutting. Is there a prospect in Europe of having similar difficulties with the banks to what we've seen in the United States given the fact that the ECB has been raising rates? It's interesting. I mean, we haven't got quite the same dynamic playing out. You certainly you don't have the same inverted yield curve and that kind of pressure uh, on on profitability of the banks. But on the other hand, you have the fact that you know bank the the broader economy is much more dependent on bank lending. So a smaller uh, problem, a smaller squeeze on the European banking system could have actually as large or even a larger effect on the economy. So you know it is something that the European Central Bank has to look at. We are seeing credit. Concerns 
conditions sharpen, tighten dramatically in the last few months. I think that will be another factor that will cause the European Central Bank to, uh, to pause in the summer. Stephanie, thank you so much for being on Wall Street. That's Stephanie Flanders. She is Senior Executive Editor for Economics and Government at Bloomberg. Let's see why frightened Americans, looking at the financial scandals of recent years, have begun to ask, is it safer under the mattress? In the past four years alone, more than 750 U.S. banks with deposits of $70 billion have closed. So far this year, there have been 22 more bank failures, representing assets of another $25 billion. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation's fund, which guarantees that depositors won't be left in the lurch, has steadily dwindled in recent years. In 1985, the fund had $1.19 to cover every $100 of deposits. Today, it has only 17 cents per $100. This is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We've all been talking about it, the leaving of major financial firms from New York City and for that matter from Chicago to go south to Miami. Some people have been calling it Wall Street South these days. Well, one person who was ahead of the times on this, really down there developing, particularly commercial real estate, is Stephen Ross. He is the founder and chairman of Related Companies. So, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. You've got a big new uh, advance in your strategy about commercial real estate down there. Talk to us about One Brickle City Center. Well, we're very excited, you know, to be here in Miami. Uh, Miami is probably the most dynamic city in the country today. You know, when you look at statistics of where growth is occurring, Miami leads the way, uh, or South Florida leads the way. And so being able to develop what we believe to be the biggest building in Miami at a location that's Maine and Maine, with all the technology and all the things that Related puts in their buildings and uh, I think, you know, people were looking to be a tenant in a related building today as evidenced by our success in New York and Hudson Yards, which really continues to grow as well. Now, obviously, you're very big in West Palm Beach. This is Miami we're talking about now. How does it fit into your long-term strategy? What comes next? Well, I mean, you know, right now, I mean, we're continuing to build in New York and we're very excited about New York. But Florida is really the growth, you know, part of the country today and where there's, you know, need for class A office space. It really needs, it's, it's, and it's more than just delivering office space. It's really, you know, building communities, building cities and making sure that those cities have the hospitals, bringing schools and all the amenities that new tenants want, to, want in relocating to Florida. Stephen, thank you so much. Really great to have you back. That is Stephen Ross. He, of course, is the founder and chairman of Related Companies. Finally, one more thought. Heavy lies the head that wears the crown. And as of this week, King Charles III of Great Britain knows just how heavy, like five pounds heavy, what with nearly 2,900 diamonds embedded in it. And that's after they cut it back for the coronation of George V in 1911. Before that, the crown was so heavy that no one could wear it. So they just carried it around in the procession. The British monarchy goes back to at least 1066, and its history and tradition are a good part of what keeps it going after nearly a thousand years. But there are also some very modern aspects of this coronation. 
Take, for example, the effects of inflation. It is hitting us all. Inflation is still too high. It, it, it's sticky. It's not coming down fast enough. And that apparently includes the monarchy, which is cutting back in the number of days and the number of people, though it is still estimated to cost upwards of 100 million pounds. Amid a cost of living crisis, the king has asked for the service to be good value. But with a reported 100 million pound price tag, it's double the cost of his mother's. King Charles rides in not one, but two royal coaches for the coronation the oldest working coach in the world for heading back to Buckingham Palace from the cathedral after he's crowned. That is the gold state coach dating back to 1760. It was first used in a coronation in the 1830s. But to get to the cathedral, it's the much newer, air-conditioned, and much more comfortable Diamond Jubilee state coach that Queen Elizabeth had made after she found the ride in the old one unbearable back at her coronation in 1953. This coach beside me will be a key part of the procession going from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey. But for all the ancient customs and traditions surrounding the British monarchy, the U.S. has some more recent parallels. President Biden, for example, has his own sort of state coach. It's called the beast made by Cadillac dating back only to 2018. And we had our own sort of modern coronation in New York just this week. Not of the King of England, but of King Jamie I of all of U.S. banking, as J.P. Morgan stepped in to rescue what was left of First Republic Bank, making the biggest bank in the U.S. even bigger. We support and want community banks and regional banks uh, you need big banks, too. And finally, King Charles shares with another president some of the difficulties in getting whom he wants to perform at his celebration, with reports that the new king was turned down by Elton John, as was President Trump back in 2016. You should have tried to be more ordinary. He would never ordinary. But not so the Italian tenor, as Andrea Bocelli declined to perform for the 45th president of the United States, but answered the call from the new king this week because of reportedly his special relationship. But then again, King Charles does not have to face an election in four years to keep his new job. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Wall Street Week. If you missed any part of today's program, you can listen on demand with our Wall Street Week podcast. Find that on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm David Weston. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.